The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone. Today, I have Jill Leafstead, who is Associate Vice Provost of Innovation and Faculty Development at CSU Channel Islands in Camarillo, California. Jill has worked in education for over 25 years, is passionate about improving learning opportunities for all learners, something we'll get into in our conversation today. She began her career in higher education at uh, CSUCI the year the campus opened. As a special education professor, she had the pleasure of helping to establish the School of Education. Her current work is focused on improving student success through innovation in learning. And while keeping a focus on learning innovation, she oversees faculty development, academic technology, and CSUCI's OER initiative. Jill, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm excited to spend some time talking with you about a few different topics. We'll definitely focus on student success and also just the nature of academic innovation in a public university system like you're in. I think there's some interesting insights that we can we can gather from that. But before we do that, I'd love to give the audience a chance to learn a little bit more about you. So why don't you take us on a little journey? Tell us a little bit of your story and how you ended up where you are today. Wonderful. Um, So I think I'll start back um, in the fact that I was originally a special education teacher in middle school. And I think that that is very relevant because it's the foundation for everything that I do. As a special education teacher, you are taught to look for individual differences in how students learn. And it was through this role that I became deeply curious in the learning process and how unique it was for each person. Although we saw commonalities, when I looked at my collection of students with a variety of disabilities, they all needed a different approach, but they could all learn. And it became a wonderful journey to get them to that point of learning and find the paths that they needed to take. So that curiosity led me to teaching a little bit down in Central America and then back to graduate school to study cognitive science, disabilities, and risk in students at UC Santa Barbara. And that process was fabulous, dug into early reading intervention to look and see how students that were coming from non-English speaking homes learned to read and what happened when they didn't learn to read in English. So those looking at those pathways, specifically looking at how intervention um, happened in the classroom and how micro interventions could impact students later learning. All of that said, I ended up taking a job at Cal State University Channel Islands. I was in the third round of faculty hired and came on the year that we were opening our doors to students. So as the newest Cal State University, we're one of 23 campuses It was really exciting to be there at the beginning. Um, I recall days of sitting around and writing the mission statement. We were writing the original documents to open the special education program and the School of Education and really looking to see how we could do it successfully and in a new way, despite being part of a large, very established system. 
Um, I did that for a while. We got our school of education up and running. I very much enjoyed preparing teachers to go out and teach in our K-12 schools. And um, during that time, I've always used a lot of technology, investigated how um, specifically how use, the use of hyperlinks, an old, old term now I realize, but impacted conceptual learning and eventually practice of teachers. And so one day our provost put out a call and said, we need to do more with technology on campus. Does anyone want to join this effort? So I raised my hand and um, it was a little bit bigger than the email stated. They really wanted someone to look at how we could better integrate technology into teaching and learning in the higher ed system at our university. So I went to University of Central Florida with a team from our campus to investigate and see what they were doing. It was an Educause event and learned a lot about blended learning. And that kind of kicked off the next phase of my career. I became deeply curious about all of the innovations happening around educational technology and how they could be used to reach the students that were at Channel Islands, which are a largely first-generation, lower-income, um, underrepresented minority campus. And that has led me to the position I'm in now, where I'm looking for innovations to improve student success. We look at it through a learning innovation lens because I do believe that to move our campus forward, it really needs to start in the classroom at the highest touch point with our students. Well, that's great. And this context, I think, is is really fascinating. There are a few people that get a chance to be part of a new higher education institution in its in its formation. And yet you're you're part of this very old system. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit about that context for innovating in the work that you're doing. Yes, it, it is a fascinating context. And I think the journey um, from the very early years where it felt like there were no boundaries because nothing was in place. You know, our books, our budget was being kept in an Excel database for years. There was no schedule of classes. There were no systems in place. And so we we're really, everybody did everything they could to help the students be successful. Um, and so it was a very, very innovative culture in general because it was kind of that startup, do, you know, lean mentality, do what you can to survive. But being part of a larger established system, such as the CSU, um, the the powers of that system quickly became obvious, right? And we started to realize that we couldn't be quite as innovative or move quite as quickly as we wanted to. And now as we're approaching um, the 20-year mark for our campus, um, we're becoming, you know, there's kind of a struggle on our campus of what is innovative and unique and where are we just part of the system. And the mission of the system is very aligned with what we want to do as a campus. But I think on our campus, the faculty and staff are looking to see how can we do it a little bit different from the system, be a little more nimble, ad adopt some some newer future thinking ideas where the more established campuses cannot move that quickly. Yeah. And, and so as we think about the population of students that you're serving, as you, you sort of outlined that a moment ago, just thinking about the concept of student success, what I'd, I'd love to design, define for our audience a little bit as, as you think about it and as the team thinks about it at um, CSUCI. 
Um, uh, but it seems to me that there's sort of high stakes here that something that's really noble and important, providing a higher education pathway for people and the access and opportunity that that creates, that's all good and promising. But if we don't get this right, it could actually set people up for even greater challenges in their lives. You just explained why I get up and go to work every day. <laughs> um, I think the the reason that I've chosen to be at you know a public access oriented university is for that very reason. Um, we don't have space to fail. Our students, our economy, our society needs us to be successful. Um, having a lot of first generation students and low income students really puts the the focus on the college going culture and helping students adjust to that. And that comes in direct conflict with the idea of innovation. Innovation, you're thinking about how to disrupt, how to change what we're doing. And yet our students are coming to us to be part of that culture. And there's so much time spent in helping them learn how to go to college so while you're at the same time trying to change what college means, um, there's a, a tension there. But I, I would say going back to your, your question about student success, I can talk a little bit about how our campus and our system looks at student success. Yeah, that'd be great. We do look at the very traditional markers. Graduation rate is a huge um, system-wide initiative to improve our graduation rates. Um, they are not very good throughout the system when you look at the four-year graduation rate. Our students that transfer from community colleges are doing, doing quite well graduating um, in two years after they get to us. We also are looking closely at retention rates, and we have some efforts right now to improve first-year retention. Our students that come to us as freshmen and this is throughout our system, but at our campus to leave at, at a quite alarming rate. And the reason that that is so concerning is our, our students are coming, they're spending money to be there, they're investing their time, and they don't get that back. And so if they leave and they don't come back and they don't end up with that college degree, they're likely not not going to come back at some point and that it's an opportunity lost for them and for us and for our community. Hmm, interesting. And I'm wondering, I just, one of my last interviews was with Michael Horn with the Choosing College book. So mm -hmm. now I'm listening to this conversation or engaging in this conversation with this framework <laughs> in my mind. So I'm, I'm just sort of prompted to ask the question, as you get to know the learners at your college, I know there are many reasons, but do you get a sense of some patterns for um, the reasons that, that uh, students state for coming to the college? So I, I think students choose our college. So there's, there's a couple populations at our school, like most campuses, but a large number of our students are local to our community and they are coming to better their life. They, they are coming to change the economic future for their families. They're coming to assure that they can have jobs where they can have health insurance. Um, we live in a, a farming community in the Oxnard Plains. So there's a lot of our students come from farm working families. They're coming so they can have a stable home and not be moving around, um, you know, migrant laborers, what have you. So I think they really are coming for an improved economic outcome. 
And they've been told by our system that, you know, coming to college and getting that four-year degree will lead to a higher income, more stable work, the ability to have a more permanent home. Hmm. So I'm thinking of the the choosing college in one way, it could be the step it up motivation that's listed that he talks about. And then there's also possibly some because they feel like this is what they're supposed to do, that uh, college is the next step to success. Yes. Yes. I, the, I think the step it up resonates the most with me um, as far as our students, but definitely the, the what they're supposed to do. Um, although there is the cultural conflict that our students come into, a lot of our students, their families, because they're not familiar with college and they don't know exactly what happens, there's a cultural conflict. Um, so we spend quite a bit of time trying to help our families understand the purpose of college and trying to get them familiar with some of the language um, that we use in, in college that can become part of their family conversation as well. And it doesn't create such a, a divide for the students and family. Now, that's an interesting dynamic too. So tell me a little bit more about the kind of work that you're doing with, with families So I'm not particularly, I'm not directly involved, but I can speak for my colleagues that are doing some great work. So for example, tonight we have a Noche de Familia, which is um, a fully bilingual evening, mariachi bands, food, what have you for families and students. And it really, the whole purpose of it is for our um, students to bring their families and to create an environment where the parents don't have to worry about how, if they speak English or not, they can come, they can learn about college, they can have fun on the college campus. And it's, it becomes a more welcoming, comfortable environment for them to be in to understand what their child has chosen to do. Mm, that's really intriguing. I, I mean, I know that there are certainly family events that happen once or twice a year in, in many colleges and universities for traditional undergraduate undergraduate students, but it sounds like maybe there's a little bit broader initiative here at this college. Definitely. there's. Um, we're a Hispanic-serving institution, and so through, we've gotten federal dollars for that. And through those efforts, one of the focuses has been on creating a college-going Um, culture in our community. And so that has been outreach to families. It has been outreach to high school counselors in our, um, you know, in our local communities and to the students to help them understand what it means to go to college and what that environment is like so that it's not such a shock. Yeah. Uh, So I I know I'm going a few different directions here because I'm just intrigued. You share something and then I have to dig in and and, uh, (laughs) learn a little bit more about it. But you mentioned the two pretty standard measures in terms of student retention and student graduation rates. Are there other measures that people are beginning to look at or maybe maybe they're not things that you've done yet, but measures that you think might be interesting to begin to explore around student success? So we're digging into a lot of different areas right now. I think our campus is just really getting access to meaningful data to look at things. One of the big, the other large markers we're looking at are equity gaps to look at um, which of our populations of students are succeeding and are there gaps with those that are not succeeding. Hmm. And um, we do, we do see equity gaps in various programs and in our graduation rates. So we're, we're targeting that quite a bit, really looking at equity-minded practices 
helping our faculty and staff understand who our population is and, and making sure that we're, we're creating an environment where people can be successful regardless of where they're coming from. Um, we're also looking into our student academic success services to see the impact. And this really takes me back to my early intervention work. Interventions I've seen in higher education, whether they're innovative interventions or very traditional ones like a writing center, tend to either intervene with students that don't necessarily need it, meaning they're getting B's, maybe C's, and they're going to graduate in a timely fashion, or they over intervene um, and they provide, they dilute the intervention by giving the intervention to people that don't need it alongside those that do. So we're starting to really look at our academic interventions, the impact on different populations, and to see how those can impact the, the students getting to graduation. And I think, you know, what's coming is the look to see is, okay, so we get them out and we graduate. What, um, what are they doing afterwards? And um, what is the benefit of the different types of majors and different type of degree paths so that we can help students better understand what the, what's coming after they get out of school? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm intrigued by this idea of your innovations having really targeted uh, audiences as opposed to just sort of uh, kind of throwing out, throwing it out there for everyone, regardless of whether it's needed. I, I think it's interesting that in, in healthcare, that's been figured out that if you have a population of a thousand people that are ill, you don't just give them all ibuprofen, <laughs> but that you maybe figure out what, what intervention or treatment or support is needed for the various exactly. <laughs> health conditions of people. So how do you do that? I mean, are there any examples that, that are promising that you've begun to identify in this way? Well, I, I think we're really just just beginning to dig into that. Um, I think we're looking at, so we have learning communities on campus. So looking to see that students getting are getting into learning communities that link to their, their outcomes. We, in our student affairs side, they're looking deeply at what students are using, what kinds of services, um, and then being able to identify students that are not using those services that are, are matching a profile of students that could benefit and looking to outreach. We're looking, um, I, would, I would say that the way that we're moving that way most quickly is improving how we communicate with students and doing some targeted communication. So we've adopted an artificial um, intelligence chatbot to try to target some of the messaging to students so that they're aware of the services. So for example, we can target, we know that students that don't enroll in classes by a certain date in the spring are the most likely not to return in the fall. So we can use um, the new communication strategies to target those students to support them. See, a lot of them, it's a small financial need that they have and they don't have the money at the right time to pay tuition and then they get distracted and it's summer and they don't come back. So can we do targeted interventions, make sure we get some, you know, maybe emergency funding going their, that, their way or clear up some sort of fine that um, is preventing them from registering? And the chatbot, is that this is an outside company you've partnered with who's helping uh, create something customized for you? 
Yes. So we have we have two efforts. The one that we're in the middle of right now is with Admit Hub. Mm-hmm. And then we're also adopting um, EAB through our advising office, which will have the targeted communication. I'm not sure they have the artificial intelligence component, though. Okay, great. Yeah, that's 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 exciting. Uh, I've I've seen some of the work happening around chatbots, and my first reaction, um, because a lot of my work is around humanizing learning environments, yeah. I got a little bit concerned. Um, but then the more I see sort of how people are using it, it, I'm using it in smart ways that actually sort of deepens the human connection. Uh, the more encouraged I am. Yes. So, you know, our, all of our effort around technology, online learning has, um, a humanizing element to it. All of our professional development, that's, um, really the focus that, um, how do we use the technology to better connect, better understand our students? And so I had the same concern with the chatbot. But when I looked at, um, the numbers of students that we just weren't connecting with and how, the emails were not being read. I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we we could rethink how we're writing the emails. We could change the language. You know, we're looking at the reading level and what have you, but they just weren't reading it. And then looking, I have two teenage sons at home and my oldest one in high school is starting to have to check his email now. And he's like, he, he refuses. So he's trying to set up all these programs so he can, you know, it can, it can text him or give him a notification when he has an email from a certain person because those are the only ones he wants to look at. So when we start looking at how students communicate and access information, suddenly the chatbot becomes really meaningful and a very personalized way to approach them. The the insights into the types of questions that students have and the way that they want to interact with campus you know, the insights that we're getting from looking at the bot are, are fascinating and they really are, are giving us a new look at the students. That is worthy of a whole separate episode. I might have to have one on AI chatbots in higher ed. That would be really, really intriguing. Um, wow. That's, that's great. I'm thinking about the, um, the way in which this also is, is personalized and you're creating kind of a loop for feedback so it can open doors to new innovations it's pretty exciting. It is. It is very exciting. So, so um, oh, go ahead, please. I think I interrupted you. No, I'm good. <laughs> okay. Years ago, I read a book where the authors noted, and I should give them credit, but I can't remember the name of the book. It was a K-12 book. I think it was even self-published and it got a little less attention because, well, it didn't have the promotion of a traditional publisher, but they came up with this, this amazing metaphor that I still use today, which is about the notion of load bearing walls. Like you're building this house and you have certain walls that are holding the bulk of the the weight. And if you were to go in and just knock one of those walls over, the roof might fall on you. So it's problematic. And they were using that in terms of changes and innovations in education and how it's really important for people to figure out where the load bearing walls are And then to be really strategic if they're going to make a change that might impact one of those load-bearing walls. I'm wondering if in a context like yours, have you gotten a sense of the load-bearing walls? What are those things that maybe there's a need to make some changes or adjustments, but uh, it needs to be done very, very carefully? Um, I think in a system like ours, all changes and all innovations need to be done carefully. 
um, there's a lot of load-bearing walls. It's a huge system and the impact on our state is significant. And there's a there's a long history of success in the CSU. It's also a a, a ginormous <laughs> bureaucratic institution. Uh-huh. So um, you know, when we talk about innovation and we talk about radical versus incremental, radical innovation in a system like ours just does not happen. And so over time, what I've begun to realize and um, had the pleasure of working with Michael Berman, who um, is now the CIO for our system. But as we started really talking about innovation when he was at Channel Islands, really, it was very clear that incremental innovation is, is the only way to go. And to do that, to create a safe space to test things out on a small scale, find out who your people are that are willing to take risks, give them permission to take risks. And then spend a lot of time, more time than you want to, in that stage of really figuring out where the policies are, where the roadblocks are that are going to prevent you from scaling an intervention up. And I think that that is the part that gets the most frustrating because it just takes so much time. And every time you think you're getting to the point where, yep, this thing is going to go, it's going to have a massive impact across our whole campus you run into one more thing that slows you down and you have to work through it and take the time and understand that to move the institution forward, you have to spend the time getting the people to move forward. And so change management um, is a big part of what we do. Yeah. And um, any examples sort of come to mind about, uh, more disruptive innovations that were tried and they just didn't work in the system? Oh, um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say didn't, didn't work, but um, things that haven't been able to scale at the rate, I think we have, um, I wouldn't call this a failure, but we've had some interesting experiments around virtual and mixed reality. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's been really interesting to watch our nursing program, which has adopted both and been able to make relatively rapid progress integrating into the system throughout their curriculum across they have they have two different sites where the um, the nurses are educated gotten it you know they're slowly getting it across both systems and that's relatively successful and um, I think the reason nursing was successful is because they have an amazing champion, Jamie Hannons, and she has had a lot of social capital and put a tremendous amount of her own energy. She was also further along in her career, more established. The School of Education has also looked to do the same, integrating mixed reality and to help teachers better understand communication skills. And it's just slow. (laughs) Um, And it's not dying and it's not failing. Like from a student standpoint, it's a successful effort, but where it's not successful is um, the complete school-wide integration or the curricular integration. And I can't tell you at this point why we have support of the Dean, we have a faculty champion, but it's just not, um, there's just barriers that are unspoken um, and other priorities, you know, they've been going through accreditation and, and different things really working in their assessment. <clears throat> so it hasn't been a primary effort. Um, 
So I, I don't know if I call that a failure, but you know, if you're looking at return on investment, um, I'm not certain that we're to the point where we're getting, you know, the learning return that we would like to see from that effort. Right. It seems like the challenge that exists in a system is there are, there's obviously there, by nature, there's going to be a significant amount of bureaucracy. You're going to have a lot of competing interests, lots of people. I mean, in any large institution, um, at least most, you'll have some different, different philosophies that inform what they do and how they do it and all that's happening. But the benefit, it seems to me, is you have a really large population. So when you're talking about what, what you were mentioning before, how you can create these, um, you can create experiments with small populations and see how they work and then potentially spread it out larger. You actually have the volume of, of student population that you can do that kind of work. We, we have the volume of student population and we're not, we're not a huge campus. We're just under 7,000 full-time mm-hmm. students right now, but that's, that's larger than a lot of campuses. I think the unique thing too, is we also have the diversity of students. So you name the intervention, we have a group of students that, you know, it, it would benefit, that would benefit from it. And so that's really nice. You know, we have high school valedictorians all the way down to students that got their GED, barely made it through community college, but are showing up on our doors and, and, and really, you know, need, need the support to get through, but can get there. So it's, it's a really great population to work with. Yeah, and I was thinking too with the uh, just the system at large. Just the, if we think about the student population across the CSU system, that if there could be innovations across campuses, there could be some really interesting. I mean, pilots with small samples. Yes, absolutely. And actually, our chatbot initiative is across five campuses. We're working as a consortium, and um, it is exciting because you can have such a large impact across across all of the campuses um, for sure yeah so there are pockets of innovation in most schools and then there are school-wide innovations i think we've been talking at and around this in different ways so pocket innovations are usually much easier to fuel and support um, but efforts to uh, work toward uh, college-wide adoption those become oftentimes the most difficult um, so how do you approach progress toward those college-wide innovations in a place like CSU? So I, I think it's interesting. My my job has changed pretty much every two years for the last six years since I've been doing this work. And um, what I've learned from that is that how you're positioned on campus, what table you're sitting at, and how close you are to money has a big impact <laughs> on um, on the campus-wide innovation. So I've been in the teaching and learning space and been quite successful in finding a handful of faculty that are willing to take risks and tell other people about their success and their failure. But to get a department or a program to adopt something and truly transform the way they're addressing teaching and learning takes a different, um, there has to be a different status. So it's, it's almost a top-down, bottom-up approach um, when it comes to, to teaching and learning. And then things like looking at student communication, um, it, it's, it's really important to have leadership buy-in. Right. So how are we communicating to students that takes everybody on campus to think and talk about it. And so that takes leadership from 
the president and the cabinet and the provost to say yes. We identify that this is, you know, a challenge and we want to address it in unique and novel ways. We recognize that we have a population of students that's changing. And then to empower people on the campus that are willing to dig into the problem to actually have a voice and have some authority to make changes. Yeah, makes sense. Well, as we as we kind of finish up here, I want to talk a little bit about the future. As you're looking at a open access public university like the one that you work at, where, where do you see it going? What is the future of the open access public university? Are there any sort of emergent innovations that you think are most promising and most likely to find their way into a school like yours? Uh, um, I mean, if we're looking at large scale innovations, I really think innovations that are focused on the complexity of our students, the complexity of their lives, and figuring out how to help students transform as you do as you get a college education while still keeping um, their jobs, their families, everything else they have going on um, alive and well. And balancing that growth experience alongside the constant bombardment of information from elsewhere. So I don't know that that's an innovation, but I think it's, it's a balancing act and something we need to, to address. I think it's much more difficult to transform how we think and how we critically analyze things with this constant um, input of information that we have right now. And maybe that's coming from being the mother of two teenagers more than <laughs> actually being in, in higher education right now. I look forward to seeing us giving students credit, you know, be it through micro-credentialing or what have you, but acknowledge the process as they go through it um, so that students that finish a year of college have something to show for the learning that happened in that year. I think four years is too long for someone to wait to get a tangible benefit. And I don't know what that's going to look like in um, our public university systems, but I think it's essential if we're going to retain students to change this idea that the, you only get something after you've completed the full program. Um, I also would like to see us have more in and out pathways so that students that for various reasons need to take breaks. They can take what they learned, do something with it, and they have an easy entry back to come back and finish a complete degree. Yeah, all those make a lot of, lot of great sense. What I most appreciate, Jill, as, as we're kind of going through this, is I love the frame that you, you um, bring to this conversation of academic innovation, really deep focus upon the needs and contexts and the uniqueness of each learner. I think that's much needed in our, in our higher ed landscape today. So thank you for your good and important work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.